Welcome to the Q Podcast Show, where we discuss ideas, innovations, and thought leadership in frontier areas such as AI, machine learning, and finance. In the last year or so, there has been a significant interest in AI explainability, fairness, and bias. Many regulatory efforts are being proposed to rein in the uncontrolled deployment of AI. Companies, on the other hand, are grappling with complex black boxes and are figuring out how to build models that are explainable, fair, and bias-free. Many startups are working on interesting technologies to address these issues. In this session, we will discuss AI explainability and bias from an entrepreneur and investor perspective and have a discussion on what the opportunities and challenges are and what the future looks like for explainable AI. In today's session, we are joined by Jennifer Jordan from Techstars, Karim Saleh, a fintech entrepreneur, Slater Viktorov from Indico, and Anthony Habayeb from Monitor in a discussion on the perspectives in AI explainability and bias. Now on to Sri Krishnamurthy, the host of the show. Welcome, everybody. This is the eighth week of the Quant University Summer School, and every Wednesday noon, we are gathering uh, an expert panel of different uh, people from different disciplines. We have authors, we have had uh, entrepreneurs, we have had uh, academics, we have had industry practitioners come down and talk about what they do and how they are kind of seeing the world of AI and machine learning and what interests them and the contributions they are making to the community and also uh, the way they are seeing the future of AI and machine learning. Uh, my name is Sri Krishnamurthy and I've been the host of this. Uh, uh, technically, it's becoming a show, you know, a Wednesday noon show of quants kind of getting together and talking about what they like uh, the most. And uh, this week, we are going to be talking about the whole area of explainability, fairness, and bias in artificial intelligence. As you know, the summer school has had two themes. One is the traditional machine learning opportunities in finance. And the second theme has been model risk and model governance. So we have two cohorts of classes going on concurrently as we speak, wherein participants from throughout the world are taking classes to get a better understanding of AI and machine learning in the industry, but also look at what are the ways in which AI and machine learning can be adopted in the industry and also the res responsible adoption of these techniques within the industry. So uh, what I'm going to do in the next few minutes is just briefly talk about some of the uh, key things you need to know. Uh, especially in the context of what's coming next. And then we will share the next 45 to 50 minutes with a discussion on various themes in the context of AI and machine learning. So uh, if you can see the screen, everybody sees the screen fine? Perfect. So uh, Quant University, as most of you know, we started out as an advisory in 2013 uh, with the intersection of data science, machine learning, and quantitative finance. We started as a consulting organization and we've been catering to large financial asset management companies, hedge funds, some regulators, and we have also been doing a lot of research for various companies, both doing technical due diligence and also audits and understanding their problems and helping them structure various solutions. We've been primarily focused on frontier areas like AI, machine learning, and big data. These are some of the technologies I love to work with and we am, I'm always connected with uh, what's happening in the academic world and also in the industry. And we you know, kind of curate those aspects and bring in to the industry, either in the context of uh, customized consulting offerings or through educational programs like what you're having now. Uh, we have uh, put together various certificate programs in machine learning, 
artificial intelligence, model risk management, and we are kind of expanding these offerings. We primarily partner with organizations like Premier to do joint offerings with those organizations. And we are also building what's called as the QSandbox, which is a platform to enable rapid experimentation of machine learning experiments. And the Q Academy, wherein most of the educational content you're going to be seeing is actually hosted on the Q Sandbox, through which we basically articulate those use cases and make them actionable through machine learning AI uh, demos and applications. Uh, so for people who don't know and who are joining new, uh, the summer school, we have primarily focused on three courses and uh, it's primarily starting with an introduction to data science with Python and then a whole eight week course on machine learning and AI and finance. And parallelly, we have also had a course on model risk management, primarily for machine learning models. And uh, we are also starting the fall recruitment. We are uh, bringing out four streams of courses, one in machine learning, another one in model risk and governance. The third one is the FinTech bootcamp, which is gonna be eight weeks of various themes in FinTech, another one focusing on different kinds of algorithms. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll be sharing the slides with you all, and you will be able to get to the links and uh, see if you're interested in registering. Uh, we recently announced an eight-week FinTech Bootcamp, which is going to be the one of the kind. Um, so please do take a look at it. Uh, it's on the Premier's website, and you get special discounts if you go through the Premier link. But if you're interested in knowing more, just go to qfintech.splashthat.com. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to talk about uh, what we're going to be doing today. So we have a, a team of experts, experts in different disciplines, and uh, you know, Jennifer and I, we had a chat a few months ago, trying to see how do we put together you know, a discussion on AI explainability and bias. So this has been a theme in the model risk management course I'm currently teaching. And we look at various facets of what does risk mean for various organizations. And with the proliferation of all the black box models and uh, complex models out there, what does it mean for a quant or a financial industry professional to adopt these kinds of models, either in the context of decision-making or to augment their decision-making process? So uh, there has been so many innovations in machine learning context, but you're also seeing that there has been interest on the ethics side of the thing, and then also uh, trying to bring in this whole notion of responsible AI. So um, Jennifer and Kareem, comes, uh, they both come uh, both from a practitioner perspective, but also from an investment perspective. So they have been looking at various innovations which are happening. Jennifer serves on uh, uh, some of the, she's at Techstars and she's also been serving on some of the other initiatives which I'll let Jennifer talk about. And then Kareem was at Zest uh, AI, uh, which was primarily looking at uh, the whole notion of underwriting and lending. And now he's also a FinTech entrepreneur and investor. Anthony is working on a cool uh, platform called Monitor. And uh, he was telling me the other day that he kind of sees Monitor sitting next to each one of the systems out there. Uh, so uh, I let him kind of discuss about the whole notion of what does monitoring mean in the context of AI and machine learning. And Slater, uh, so uh, just to let you know Slater, I am uh, also an adjunct faculty at Babson College, which is kind of the sister or the brother school of all in, I guess. In some ways. Um, uh, so uh, I also am a Babson alum, so I kind of hung wow. out in the 
in the area where in uh, you know you were kind of studying. Uh, so uh, Slater is the CEO of Indic. Uh, sorry, that's not right. <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> no, that's a very old bio. Uh, I'm an EIR at 406 Ventures, and I'm the CTO uh, at Indico, uh, as well as the founder of iTry. Um, so okay, sorry about that. I kind of you know scraped the online um, you know profile you had, and um, okay, I'll I'll let you all you know uh, introduce yourselves and talk about what makes you so interested in this whole area of AI and machine learning, but also primarily focusing on responsible AI. So how about we spend a few minutes so that we can kind of go around the room and introduce ourselves and just kind of get a feel for, you know, what areas of AI and machine learning you are focused on. Uh, so maybe Jennifer, you can kick it off and then we can kind of, you know, go around the room. Sure, I'll, I'll kick it off here, Sri. Thank you very much. So I'm Jennifer Jordan. I'm an early stage investor for um, through, through the middle of 2018, I, I was investing directly on the behalf of the state of Massachusetts, mostly in data-driven companies. One that you might know if you're in this region is Ginkgo Bioworks, but uh, there's a number of others, machine metrics. So everything from synthetic biology to IoT to CRM applications, and we also looked at lots of fintech. Um, one of the things that I found as I was leaving Mass Ventures was we were starting to see a real rise in the number of companies purporting to be using artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, within their applications to build models and um, deliver services to companies. And as we were meeting some of these entrepreneurs, not all, but some, um, there was kind of a lack of systems thinking about what it would mean to put this technology into production and for someone to adopt it and start using their application. And it got me really thinking about what would be the next generation of companies that are needed to support the use of AI at scale in the business environment. And what I mean there is I'm really interested in what I'm calling AI trust and transparency and the tools and data that we need um, across an organization from uh, privacy and governance capabilities, interpretability and explainability and tools to support developers and data scientists, um, tools for monitoring and auditing, and tools really for product lifecycle management of these applications because often they are systems and they are very dependent on where they live within the system. If that you change the processor, you may get different results. If you are building a model and then it's going into hardware, you need to keep those two things in sync, for example, in manufacturing. So I have a working thesis about this. We're raising a seed fund focused in this area of AI trust and transparency. And the thesis is that the market will grow similarly to the way we saw cybersecurity grow over the last 15 years, that as um, the internet took hold and more network took hold. We had an increasing number of issues along the flow. Um, the other parallel would be to think about this as the way DevOps has evolved to support software development. We will have a layer of tools and capabilities that develop to support model development. And so I'm really excited that we have with us um, Slater, who is one of the early 
uh, adopters in terms of using unstructured data and building solutions for fintech companies. Kareem, whose company, when he was part of, he was an EVP at Zest Finance, first began building models uh, to, to do a better job with underwriting and then realized that just the trust and transparency element of how you deliver that would be of value to other financial services companies. So he can talk about that. And then Anthony, as, as Sri mentioned, uh, who's building Monitar for model assurance. So I want to turn it over first um, to, to Kareem to talk a little bit about the journey of, of Zest from doing underwriting yourselves to realizing that this was, would be something that you would deliver a value to others and how you thought about that. Thanks, Jennifer. Hi, everyone. Pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Kareem Saleh. Uh, a little about me. Um, I've basically spent the last several years applying complex machine learning algorithms to consumer loan underwriting. Uh, I started my career kind of uh, working on financial inclusion issues initially in the nonprofit sector uh, and then um, at the U.S. government and then the last couple of years, uh, uh, several years actually, uh, in kind of Silicon Valley-backed startups. Um, and that gave me kind of visibility into the underwriting practices of some of the kind of quote-unquote most prestigious financial institutions in the world. Uh, and I was quite surprised to learn um, that even at the commanding heights of finance, um, most underwriting practices are still quite rudimentary. Uh, they, uh, you know, use uh, linear logistic regression models, 20 to 50 variables, uh, largely, um, you know, largely not great at underwriting kind of um, borrowers at the bottom of the economic pyramid whose credit bureau histories are often messy, missing, or wrong. Uh, and so five years ago, uh, I set out uh, on a journey to find people who were kind of working on interesting ways of modernizing underwriting. Uh, and I landed at a Silicon Valley startup um, that had been founded by Google's former chief information officer. Uh, and he, he was lending for his own balance sheet. Uh, and his insight was that complex AI ensembles, I'm talking about ensembles of you know, tree-based methods and, and neural networks and support vector machines, um, they, uh, that use, you know, uh, you know, 10x the number of variables as are currently, you know, used by conventional underwriting models. Those complex AI ensembles, particularly for hard-to-score borrowers, dramatically outperformed um, conventional underwriting techniques. Uh, the problem with complex uh, ensembles is that they are very hard to explain and validate, uh, which makes them very, very difficult to use in high-stakes applications like lending, healthcare, predictive policing, any, any domain uh, where you really need to understand uh, why the robot um, kind of uh, did what it did. Uh, you know, if you're like Uber and you're trying to optimize the path from, you know, one point A to point B, uh, you know, it's a relatively low stakes decision. Maybe you can rely on a black box because if, you know, the, the car takes a wrong left turn someplace, it might cost somebody some time and a little bit of money, but it's not a life uh, threatening decision. But, but you know, um, in some of these high stakes applications like consumer finance, you really can't just like uh, throw your hands up and say, well, I don't know why we uh, approved this person or denied that person. The robot just told us to do it. 
so we, we, we started working on and applying methods to explain black box algorithms. Uh, and that was really, really eye-opening because once you can see the variables that these models are taking into account and to what extent, uh, as well as the ability for seemingly benign variables to interact in ways that encode information, you start to realize, whoa, these algorithms are super predictive, but they also have the potential to be really unfair. Um, and in, in lending, the models can be unfair for a variety of reasons, mostly related to, you know, uh, data availability, data representativeness, um, and multivariate interactions, which can proxy for race. Uh, the good news is that like every day some enterprising mathematician comes up with some great method to explain and de-bias models. Uh, Microsoft has an open source package, IBM has an open source package, Google has an open source package. What's surprising to me, frankly, uh, is that um, these methods of increasing machine learning, explainability, and fairness aren't uh, in more widespread use in the financial services industry. Uh, I think that that is uh, going to change. Uh, I think that, you know, if there's a, a, first of all, I think that just the, the cultural moment demands uh, increased fairness and transparency and trust uh, from financial institutions, especially as it becomes clear uh, the kind of disproportionate impact that the pandemic is having on minority borrowers and women. And I think if there's a change uh, in the U.S. government this fall, um, the likelihood of kind of fair lending enforcement and an emphasis on AI transparency and fairness issues um, is likely to increase dramatically. So I've, I've said a lot. Why don't I uh, pause there? Yeah, if you would pause, I want to turn for a second to um, Slater because one of the ways that I look at this problem is to look at it as sort of you've got problems on the data side and how you manage data. You've got problems of the build of the algorithm and can you provide explanation. We've got problems that Anthony's going to address about once you put it in production, how do you keep track that you're doing the right things and that you have a, a trail for audit. But you really think about this in terms of how do you design the system for it and you recently yeah. published a paper looking at this uh, in Nature. He can send you the link. Sorry, no, that is that is absolutely not my FDA paper. med devices. No, sorry, sorry. I Big disclaimer, that is absolutely not my paper. I did not write that paper. Oh, you didn't write the paper. No, 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 no. You referenced the paper to me as a method that you guys, you think about. Let me correct that. Yeah, I mean, let me just maybe do my introduction, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So uh, my name is Slater Viktorov. Uh, I am at Indico Data Solutions. I'm the founder of Indico. I'm currently the CTO of Indico. I'm also uh, an executive in residence at 406 Ventures, which is kind of a, a large Series A targeted venture capital, uh, venture capitalist firm in Boston, uh, big focus on kind of healthcare and data. Um, my background in this space, uh, Indico was kind of, uh, you know, one of the very first companies to take modern deep learning methods and start moving them into production uh, in a way that was easily accessible. We started doing that in sort of 2012 and 2013, you know, kind of as ImageNet came out. And our really big uh, question, right, was sort of asking, in a lot of ways, how effective these methods were, right? How exactly we were going to ensure that we were doing things the right way. Right, and I would say that that is kind of the really simple mission that has driven our whole view of explainability. Um, so I'll say my, my personal view, right, is that I think the big issue with explainability is that everyone means something different when they say explainability. 
Uh, and uh, when Jennifer Jordan is talking about system level explainability, uh, my personal view and the way that we've built this into Indico is by saying that, uh, and actually Kareem made a really, really excellent point with the uh, variables that are proxies for race. I think that if I had to kind of say the one thing that is my fundamental view on explainability, it's that I think people chase model level explainability when that will not give them the, the outcomes that they're looking for. Uh, I'll give a really simple example. Let's say that we've got a model that looks at zip codes and predicts some financial variable, right? Whether that is consumer risk, right? Or an appraisal uh, modifier, right? Whether that's more or smaller. Uh, most people don't realize, but even an OLS style model uh, by looking at a zip code can actually infer race to kind of a disturbingly high degree. And so the reason I use that example is because no amount of introspection you do on the model that goes from zip code to that financial metric will show bias, right? It, it is literally impossible to find that at the model level, right? Mm -hmm. So my, my point uh, is that model level explainability is important and it's fundamentally a tool for researchers to explain what their model is doing internally, right? But separate from that, the questions that we really, really need to be able to answer is not, you know, this prediction came out as eight because we set K in our KNN model to three, you know, and kind of pat ourselves on the back, right? What we need to understand is, okay, you know, where exactly does this perform in production? Where is this going to stand up? Where is this not going to stand up? How was this trained? How do we make sure that there was no test train contamination, right? So when I talk about explainability and system level explainability, that is really what I'm talking about is saying that the entire process from start to finish from your uh, data gathering to your test train splits to the deployment to any ongoing training, right? Which I think that we've heard a lot about from Kareem and Anthony is going to continue to kind of delve into. I, I do think you really need a full solution there to say that you've delivered on explainability. So that's my spiel. Cool. Anthony, you want to tell a little bit about Monitor and how you, you pick right up on a theme that Slater just talked about, which is how do you keep track of this stuff afterwards for a, the business perspective and how does that information get back so that we make sure we're doing the right things because this stuff won't be just surfaced by uh, model level explanation, but we have to look across the whole continuum. Oh. <clears throat> so, hi, Anthony Havai, uh, co-founder, and I am the of Monitor, um, but I'm the co-founder and, and CEO of, of Monitor. Um, yeah, so I view the world, uh, actually for a minute, think about doctors that make their oath to do no harm. In many ways, we have a technical audience on this call, you are model builders, right? You're going to build a model that you're not going out there with nefarious means, right? But you understand things can happen. And there are ways that you will try to instrument your model and your system to identify those mistakes and issues. But there's also an intentionality that not just you, but the people around you need to have in terms of building appropriate controls around the process and systems that work together to cause an end result. And if you think about that idea of a relationship between process and systems, um, the idea of having controls against these risks is not foreign in regulated industries. And there's a really massive industry that already exists to try and create these confidences in these validations of their controls. And that idea is called assurance. And 
machine learning has very unique nuances as people on this call and this panel understand in terms of its technical architecture and its way of either showing or not showing how it reaches conclusions. The elements in the tech stack involved in getting to an end result. Should I give Anthony Habayab a life insurance policy? Does this patient have cancer? Should we give this patient this medication? Should I give Anthony a loan or not give him a loan? Should we hire Anthony, yes or no? Those are really important consequential decisions that Yes, you should build appropriate controls around a system, but you should also have an intentional process through which you go from how you decided to even use a model, how you documented what the model's supposed to do, and then when this model is in production um, to where Jennifer kicked off, what visibility does this extended group of individuals who care about the performance and the compliance and the efficacy of this model, how do we collaborate to understand what the system is doing and appropriately manage the risks that I'm worried about. And so really specifically, we're building a company that provides software that is meant to enable that exact problem, right? That lets a model developer focus on, actually O'Reilly did a great article a couple of weeks ago that you all might want to check out, which sort of, I think reinforces a point that I feel strongly about. The machine learning space is not going to be owned by a monolithic application. Like no single company is going to own machine learning. You're going to figure out which model type is the right model to solve your problem. And somebody else in a business might have some other way to approach a problem, but your company needs one way of building compliance and controls around those things. And so we're building a software that is meant to connect to any model and to start to enable really users around you as the model builders to have the enablement of control and management of compliance and mitigation of risks that they worry about around your model. Um, so for me, explainability uh, is an important piece of a broader assurance framework. Managing bias is an important piece around this broader uh, assurance framework, and, yeah. and that's our view of the world. I want to throw something out for all of you that I think is really is interesting to me. Um, when I'm out talking to uh, potential customers for these applications, NLPs, I meet sort of two, um, two extremes of the world and then kind of a messy middle. And the two extremes are we have been on the forefront of AI. We are building models and we've basically, so think about the, the main platform AI providers, the Facebooks of the world, They've been building models with an emphasis on performance and accuracy and speed to deploy, right? And then scale. Like, can they scale them as quickly as they can? And there's very, when I talk to those people, it feels like there's very little um, infrastructure to support responsibility of the AI or to support assurance. On the other end is are people who've been within the regulated model industry who've been building linear models predominantly and using some elements of machine learning. And they have a process for testing those models and validating those models. And some of those people feel like they've got it all dialed in. And that this way of doing AI or deep learning is not that new and they don't really need to change their process at all. And I would love to have, um, Shri, this is one for you to chime in on too. All of you have been pr practitioners and are meeting people in the marketplace. I'd love for you to talk about what you see in terms of the range of those 
temperatures of nothing to, oh, we've got this all locked down. And so, then um, how you've addressed it. Yeah, so I'd actually like to make an assertion um, because I think that in my experience, um, there's sort of an inverse relationship between the people that think they understand it and the people that do actually understand it. Um, and I think the example that you used uh, about Facebook was perfect, right? Because I think that when you talk to someone at Facebook, right, and you talk to them about explainability insurance, right, you will often get that kind of like, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what you mean by that, right? You know, I don't know if we have anything like that. But when you actually look at the systems that they've got, right, their runtime monitoring of these models, right, that exists, right, rigorous, rigorous benchmarking to determine exactly what the bias is amongst different areas, right, like this exists. Um, I think a really telling example uh, is that if you look at uh, AJL's work, right, they went and they basically examined and they looked at IBM, right, and I think IBM is a really clear example of someone that certainly makes a lot of noise about being on the right side of that spectrum, saying they've got a lot of assurance, right, and then you've got Google that I think you literally used as the example of the far left side. But what they found is that Google was something like 20 times less biased than IBM was at exactly the same task. And I think that is a really great example of why I think system level explainability is so important, right? I think that these new models, there are a lot of really important lessons to be learned from assurance. And I think a lot of that existing space should be reused, but not 100% of it. And I think one particular place where the focus does really need to shift is that I don't think that it's right for someone in explainability space to assert oh, uh, they should be using an OLS model for this, right? Or they should be using logistic regression or they should be using X or Y or Z, right? I think that in my view, if you've got an explainability framework that doesn't apply across all model types, then you don't really have an explainability framework. Uh, mm. I'll, I'll probably, you know, kind of address the second part of what you were mentioning, Jennifer. And I mean, um, just, just working in this area for so many years. And uh, we came from a model validation perspective. This was pre-machine learning, right? So this was when we had the stress testing frameworks with the post-2008, you know, the SR117, everyone having to uh, go about and build out frameworks for model risk management within various companies. Mm -hmm. So I think there is this, you know, complete, discrepancy in terms of understanding of what the industry needs. Mm. And many a times the technology vendors are pushing what they've innovated into the financial services industry. And without an understanding of, just to be you know, blatantly honest, the technical sophistication of the folks who are actually managing processes within the financial industry. Just bringing in a couple of data scientists or machine learning engineers into the workflow is not going to change the process within the industry. There are, you know, people in multiple layers making decisions. Um, there are ownerships. There's way in which things are done in the industry. And machine learning is trying to make an impact in two levels, right? One is on the automation space wherein you could say, well, humans are doing this. If we learn what humans are doing, Classic example, NLP, you know, you need lawyers to be reading this and extracting certain keywords. You know, you have certain you know, reports and we are trying to extract certain keywords and maybe extract some sentiments, you know, overall, how is my customer service doing? Do I really need a customer service rep sitting down and answering password reset questions? 
all those kinds of questions AI and machine learning can easily address. And that's where you can kind of, you know, see a lot of adoption happening. On the other hand, when you have traditional statistical models and you have the quants, typically physicists, engineers, you know, people who came with economics background and that built out the whole thing, um, there is obviously, you know, the financial data is not like, you know, your recommendation system data or computer vision data wherein you have, this is my ground truth. I'm going to like try and build out my models towards this ground truth. And I can explain it in various ways to get there, right? So a lot of discussions which I've seen is primarily geared towards, well, you guys don't know what you're doing. Let me build this thing for you and give it to you and you will be able to do your job better. And then if the pushback is, well, we're not understanding what you're doing. So, oh, we have this explainability suite, which will help you explain better. So ultimately they think that the decision, the people who are sitting there are gatekeepers trying to cater to somebody else's need and they need to do their job better. And that's not the case, right? You know, they have fiduciary responsibility. They have, you know, organizational constraints. They have various aspects. And I don't think the industry is there yet to basically take these solutions and if you build a better widget and adopt it, it's going to happen, right? Yeah, that's so we it. are see, seeing I multiple think. phases of evolution and I think explainability is still scratching the surface in the whole aspect. And the concerns are real. The concerns about bias is real. The concerns about not being able to explain is real. So that's why we are kind of coming from a framework perspective, you know, wherein, well, these are all the things you already have. And these are all the things which are coming in. So how do you integrate this? You can't just have two parallel processes saying, this is for traditional models, this is for machine learning models. That's never gonna happen. Or you cannot replace the traditional workflow by saying, let's kind of build in this because the, you know, we have figured it out. We have model validation, we have all these reports, we have all these things happening and everybody in the Valley likes this. So you should also be adopting. That's, that kind of you know, thing is not gonna work too. So the when you, can sell, you were selling into this market. Tell me a little bit about what you found as you made that shift from doing the underwriting to helping people with their underwriting models and, ex, and providing explanation. Yeah, I, um, I like very much <laughs> many of the things that Slater said, but in particular, uh, the comment that, you know, he often found that there's an inverse relationship between the people who claim to, to know what they're doing explainability wise and actually do. My, my experience has run the, get, the spectrum that you kind of identified, Jennifer. I mean, five years ago, we started working with Chinese technology companies. Uh, and frankly, that was the Wild West. Um, they were very, very advanced technologically. Uh, you know, how good their enterprise-wide risk controls were, frankly, I don't know. I suspect substantially weaker than the ones uh, at Google and Facebook. Um, but, and I think that probably has changed a bit in China too, as some of the excesses of the peer-to-peer -peer lending market um, became quite, quite frothy. Um, the other end of the spectrum is, you know, I'll call on financial institutions who'll say, well, we use a machine learning algorithm to derive certain features, and then we shoehorn those features back into a logistic regression because it allows us to, uh, you know, run our existing model validation and compliance process. And that feels to me like the triumph of, you know, form over substance because... 
do you really understand those machines? You get the appearance of, of explainability because you can kind of look at the coefficients of your logistic regression and understand what it's doing. But do you really understand those machine-derived features? Uh, my, guess is, my guess is not. It's like uh, you've got a billion parameters generating one feature, and then you pay attention to the one coefficient you multiply that feature by after right. that. Right. Uh, so, um, so I, I tend to think that, that Slater is also right that like what is needed, I tend to talk a lot about model level explainability, but, but Slater is absolutely right. I mean, what is needed is enterprise wide controls that are probably principles based uh, that, you know, um, that demand that like, yeah, like we're agnostic with respect to the modeling technique that you use, but you got to damn well make sure that whatever technique you use, you're validating that model in a method that's appropriate to the technique uh, and, and then governing that model uh, in a manner that, um, you know, assures that it is not, that model does not pose a threat to the safety and soundness of the financial system or to consumers. Amen. I want to jump, I want to call on Anthony here because that feels a, like, that was such a tee up for what you're building. And the other part that may, is interesting to me is that um, some of your initial conversations have been not, not specifically with banks as financial services companies, but with insurers. And what strikes me about that is insurers also highly regulated, but a different process of using models than what we have in financial services. And so maybe um, an openness there or an understanding that they really don't have the, the same assurance structure and they need to build and build fast. And so I'd love you to talk about what you're seeing there in the engagement, both on the regulatory side and on the customer side. Yeah, I, I um, one thing that strikes me as well is we sort of think about three, the word principles um, is important because uh, even Brookings Institute did something the other day that talked about the idea of soft law, right? In the need for AI to have soft law, which are these sort of principles that govern without explicit mandates. And I think that, that was a pretty smart piece that you guys might want to check out. But something that we think a lot about is you should sort of in, in a proper assurance or governance around these systems, you should sort of have three things. You should have context, you should have verifiability, and you should have objectivity. Right, and how those things get manifested into your system or into your process are really important. And banks have done, I mean, Sri can speak to this, right? Like model validation, model risk management, right? I mean, Kareem has sold into this. That's not a new idea in banking at all. Been doing it for decades. And that's actually where their vulnerability exists if they were using machine learning, but they are not anywhere near machine learning making a last mile credit decision. Now go to insurance potentially, or healthcare, where they are laggards in terms of investment in data and in machine learning. Banking is way, was way ahead of data and therefore can be ahead on machine learning. Insurance and healthcare are catching up on data and that time span will be faster than it was in banking because of the advancements. But now they are saying, I could transform how I provide term life insurance to a consumer right? Any of you that have gone through a term life insurance or a life insurance process, it takes forever. But if you're 25 years old, single and have and do nothing risky in your life, why can't you offer me a policy on the spot? You could build a model that effectively evaluates that consumer and provides, but that's not even how insurance works today. Like you literally Someone need to write, just start doing that actually about a year ago. Yeah. So like, um, there's, a great, there's a company out of California 
that has been doing a lot around term life that just did, I think, a series B um, and some other entrants into this this category because there's great disruption potential. And in healthcare, there's great disruption potential. But these are really important decisions that impact our lives. And back to context, what a consumer wants to know about that decision versus what the compliance manager wants to know versus the technical conversation that Slater and Kareem were having around technical coefficients of an outcome, completely different users in the context of what an explanation means to them is very different. And as you are building and deploying models, it's really important that you think about context of the users that will be affected by that model and what they need to know, and that they have some degree of confidence, there's an objectivity in how that understanding explanation was provided or how bias was confirmed or not confirmed that was objectively done so the person who built the model isn't the one saying my model is perfect and and that there's also this ability for someone to verify and and that's also it's a different domain in my opinion from explainability right but the literal ability to do some element of reperformance or verification or or like validation what this thing did can be done again is actually also really powerful. Um, so I hope I that's that sort of connected. Such a great point you made there. Hey, uh, Shri, we've got our first comment in the comment yeah. section from uh, Jigar Vakaria, who's writing that traditionally quantitative asset managers using multivariate linear regression that explain risk return have done a decent job with system level explainability because the quant asset managers have a fiduciary responsibility. Um, the typ typically, the models are built in-house, teams are STEM members, economists, and the members all have domain level knowledge, which is another aspect of explainability. Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting comment from Jigger in the, in the face of um, we're starting to see the place both of the internal teams and the sort of democratization where people are selling applications into companies or um, like like the uh, insurance company you just referred to, Anthony, are innovating in the space and may not have all this other domain knowledge involved. Jennifer, so, a quick point on this. This is almost a perfect example of that, like, I know what I'm doing. And, and Jigger is right. If you go into a high-frequency trading desk or a bank that's doing some things with quant, you don't execute a trade unless some of these things exist. Like, we're talking about billions of dollars of movement, right? But that there's a sophistication and a type of model being used there very intentionally because you can't afford to not have some of those visibilities when you're transacting. Like, what's the company in, New, in Jersey City eight years ago that completely collapsed within an hour because of they, they sort of went a little bit further? Um, gosh, Night Street, I think is what it is, or Night Capital, right? Uh, Night yeah, Capital. yeah, that was it, Night Capital. Yeah, so like, I think Jigger's totally right. Um, but this thing is not what some of these not pure quant, large corporations that are excited to use these models to make decisions, they don't, they don't have this. Yeah, and, 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 and I would, yeah, I, I agree with that very much. And I think I would go a, a step further because I think that, you know, obviously there are a small number of, you know, very sophisticated quants. I think, you know, Two Sigma is kind of the perennial example of this that have, you know, been doing this for years, right? And they've got a really good setup for what I would assert is a very, very particular prompt setup, right? And, and just to speak to the quant world, right, I, let me just give a couple of examples that I think folks have thrown out, but I would consider sort of the absolute base necessity for kind of a responsible setup, right? And I think hearing these, you'll realize 
these basically don't exist at most companies, right? So number one, Anthony, like you said, the person validating the model has to be a different person than the one building the model. Seems basic, very rare. Doesn't right? exist at Google today based on a friend yeah. of mine's experience, for it, example. It, it depends on the group, right? Not, right. Actually, not certainly system-wide. They didn't have I'll a, a system that was team that was separate from the model building team yet. That yeah. They knew it was on the roadmap, but it wasn't there yet. It's just yep. a year so, ago. So that's one piece, really basic, right? Number two, and this is, you know, kind of the most basic thing anyone in ML would say, separating your test and your training sets, right? Um, you would be surprised. There are companies out there in the market today that have a policy of advertising accuracies on their training data, right? So I think, and, and the third thing that I would kind of throw out there, right, is the idea of having consistent testing. Uh, and I think specifically on the quant side, one example of this is sort of regression testing, where often, you know, everyone has their own different Excel spreadsheet, everyone does the regression testing in a different way. And people don't often think about those things as explainability, right? But when we talk about system level explainability, you have to say like, every single one of those places, that is where error and bias enters your system. Right, like when my regression test is different from Joe's regression test, right, suddenly we can't actually compare those two. And I think that in some industries and specifically in kind of the very top tier quants, they do a really, really good job. But I think that if you look sort of across FinTech, uh, I, I don't even see those basic principles being adhered to. Oh, I think there's real variants that I've seen across uh, domain within the organization. So for example, people charged on the consumer and marketing side may have a different uh, set of experience and strictures around this stuff. And now they're starting to have access to tools that would let them um, very aggressively and precisely personalize offers to people. And as you're doing that, you're starting to walk into the places where you have a, additional regulatory risk. And you may not realize it because their knowledge of building those models is not the same as the guy who's sitting there executing trades, right? Um, it, it, ironically, I'm just going to put some fear in your hearts or some, some, some like light bulbs. This is, we're talking within the context of FinTech, but of course, data scientists are in demand across the world right now for these issues and across verticals. And it is continually surprising to me how um, this lack of systems level th thinking hits people and then they realize it and have to scramble to catch up. So the example that I'll give you is, um, in the, and, and where you meet what you care about in terms of explanation or responsibility or security around your AI system varies by, by vertical, right? So Tesla, Model 1 car, didn't take into account as they initially developed the models this, that the sensor data, the sensor hardware information needed to be tracked with the model build. Because when you release, when you go to the next production run of the vehicle and you use a potentially a different sensor from a different manufacturer or you upgraded the sensor, you now yeah, have to go one. back and retrain the model. And in the first version of the Tesla, this was an issue that they hadn't tackled. Now there are companies that are coming out of, say, chip design like Fortelix that are really focused on um, developing verification and validation models for these, the autonomous sensor systems in cars that are separate from 
the tracking, but both the life cycle management and those verification systems were initially missing, right? Model two, recognition of the problem, total rebuild from the ground up to get to a place where they can track some of these things. And, right? and what's your my understanding? The, and I, am, I, I don't know them personally, but that's my understanding from talking to people there. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point, Jennifer. I mean, you know, when you have automobiles and you're building a product which is going to serve millions, you know, you can definitely build in that amount of rigor to make sure that the VNV process, as they are called, kind of are incorporated. One of the challenges with the financial industry is the business models are so diverse and there are so many asset classes, so many sizes. I mean, if you go to, you know, like a traditional Wells Fargo, they have the infrastructure, they have the technology teams, they have the model validation team, they have the separation of responsibilities and they can kind of, you know, build out that level of infrastructure, but talk about a $200 million bank somewhere in the Midwest and they don't have that level of technical sophistication and they still want to be using some of these models, right? right. So I think we'd be looking at Nest and other and 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 Indigo to help them, right? Absolutely, and that that's where we have to think about context because you know if you do not have solutions which are meant for specific contexts, and otherwise we are just going to be talking either too high level, wherein we all agree that there is going to be some process required, some amount of vetting of each one of these system components required. If you kind of talk at the data scientist level, we can start talking about the specific terms like, you know, Lyme, Shapman scores, and you can kind of, you know, get to the very nitty gritty of things, right? And that's where this whole area of algorithmic auditing is becoming more and more popular. And if you look at the, like the spectrum of people who are really busy validating the models, it's not the companies frantically trying to hire model validators internally. It's not, they're not just outsourcing it into like saying, give me that product which is going to do these things for me. It's the consulting companies. Yeah, I think it services in a similar way to what we saw with cyber. Right, right, right. Because you had to bring in that context, the domain expertise, and structure the problem in a particular way, and then figure out, because ultimately humans are going to be making decisions whether to let, go, to let this model go into production or not. And even if you give them all the reports saying, well, here are all the green check marks, if you don't understand what those check marks actually mean, you know, you're not just gonna say another system validated it and we are gonna trust this other system and we're gonna go and you know, get this model into production. It has to be someone sitting there and saying, well, I understand that this is the amount of risk I'm taking if something bad happens and I've done this amount of due diligence and I'm gonna be able to like bless this model or at least understand that these are the mitigation measures which are in place. Right. I think there is that human in the loop element, which is significantly required in explainability. Right now, it's not an automation problem. Well, it's and it's building the right a translation issue too. Like I've seen companies that are sort of drag and drop explainability, apply the technique that works mm -hmm. for you. Like I said, there'll be vertical specialization here. Um, Absolutely. Yep. But, but that's not enough to to solve the sort of need that Anthony addresses, for example, of, or that Kareem is addressing, or even Slater's talked to about making the, the technical to business level translation of what does this stuff mean and what should right. I be thinking about? Yeah. Um, I think we're at the, the... Go ahead, Slater. I was going to say, I think, because one of the things I really loved about what you were saying, Sri, is sort of, uh, I think one of the archetypes that's actually really destructive to the data science world is kind of, uh, the lone data scientist in a corner, 
right? And sort of when you talk about that $200 million bank, you know, the thing that immediately jumps to my head is, you know, the company went and hired three data scientists and sort of stuck them in a corner, right? And mm -hmm. I think that, unfortunately, it happens really, really commonly. And I think a lot of people do have this idea of, you know, I'm kind of going to leave the data scientist in the corner and, you know, like, make the number go up, right? And I think what I really think is that people need to respect how hard it is to really try to create an AI advantage, right? And say, like, if I'm going to have a single person there, what that single person really needs to be responsible for is orchestrating other things. Because to build AI, like, it, it's not just someone building scikit-learn models in the corner, right? It mm -hmm. has to be more organizational. Actually, you know, one thing to throw on that that actually connects back to Jiggy's comment, too, the people that own the budgets and will be making decisions about investments in MLI in ML and AI are not going to be able to engage at a technical level with the team that is building those things. And that is terrifying. Like one of my biggest values to monitor is I am not the data scientist. And so I've been the PNL business line owner that says, go team, go build this. Imagine you are a multi-billion dollar business line owner that is now entrusting those data scientists to build you an application to make critical decisions for your business. And you feel no personal empowerment to be able to know, is that application doing what it's supposed to do? Have they built the proper controls in place? Do they have somebody objectively looking at their system? Can I take a peek now and then if I wanted to? Those are very real, like emotional things that every person involved in building a model should at least empathize with and understand your enablement to build, deploy, and grow this thing that you want to build is going to have to think about that stakeholder. Um, and it's really, it's really important to sort of develop that muscle and skill, I think, to engage with those people and make them um, invested right um in this Even overall process c curve can be beyond what you can communicate to the business right yeah, yeah. totally so we are we are we did not leave enough q a time Shri. we've got six minutes if you want to give absolutely so i think uh, just just to you know uh, about people who are listening uh please type your questions in the chat window and we'll try and get to as many questions as possible this has been a uh, an invigorating discussion for me so i'm just kind of taking notes as we are speaking and because you know many a times i kind of work with the c level folks who are you know basically he's looking at the problem and saying look i have a team of data scientists i have my model validation team i'm setting a whole you know a governance policy i have my different uh, lines of business to take care of. I'm looking at model risk. I'm looking at reputation risk. I'm also accounting for all the other things. And for them, we are kind of starting to, you know, look at the policy level decisions that needs to be made. How do you kind of, you know, integrate these aspects into the whole process? And that's where we are primarily focused on the education front because it's education at multiple levels, not just the technology piece, but also the process piece, the integration piece, and the whole and just to even set the realistic expectations that you're not just kind of buying Lego blocks and building upon things, right? Yeah, you're not. Uh, but this has been a fascinating discussion. So please, uh, if people uh, have questions, uh, you know, please type them into either the Q&A panel or um, in the chat window. Actually, I had a question um, for you, Jennifer. Okay. So, um, I, you know, some of the valuations are just crazy when I see people are investing and the latest one on, I mean, I shouldn't be saying this, you know, Bumble 
six to eight billion dollars. Um, they're going for an IPO. Um, so you you've been looking at uh, AI and machine learning models at all levels. How do you value an AI company, and where is the IP, and like how do you kind of position the oh. hockey stick, the proverbial hockey stick, and what what fascinates you with the business model, with the technology, and how do you kind of evaluate it? Because I presume you are also not, you know, the data scientist like Slater, who is kind of looking at ROC curves, right? So you're, you're kind yeah. of looking at a bigger picture. Well, I think, um, I don't know the Bumble example explicitly, but what I would tell you is that, uh, and I usually work very, very early stage because I'm a seed investor, not a, you've gotten to some degree of traction. But I think what you see is that there are a few companies like Lemonade, um, Bumble, that have found a way to both outperform on the um, risk profile and outperform on the reaching the customer element. Right? And a lot of these are applications that have some face to the consumer. And when those things have taken off recently, they've achieved very large valuations because their growth is relatively quick. Um, I think we've seen a slower path to ramp on the enterprise side. And of course, anybody in financial services right now is looking at the, um, the uh, it's not, the, the, yeah, it is. It's a tableau finding, filing, mm -hmm. and saying, wait a minute, 15 years, several billion dollars to get to $700 million of revenue. What were we doing, right? And yet a tremendous amount of value has been unlocked by those applications. And the question is, can they get their model and their, their, um, their, their sales and marketing and operating expenses in line that they have the right kind of EBITDA as a public company? That's a somewhat different question. But I think we're going to continue to see, um, see uh, strong investment where people fear there's differentiation or where there's been some rapid traction. Mm -hmm. There's also likely to be some reckoning. There are early stage companies that have raised quite a lot of money at relatively high valuations, even in this AI trust and transparency space. And it's going to be incumbent on them between now and their next round to rack up the sales. And that really depends on what is the appetite within organizations for help in building responsible AI. Mm -hmm. So the, the other question I had was actually going back to what uh, Anthony was saying before about this O'Reilly article, right? You know, there is definitely from a technology perspective, you know, saying, well, we need specialized solutions. You know, we can't have just a platform having all the tools integrated into it. But um, I was talking to someone in the financial industry recently, and they were saying, well, the industry is not going to be like taking all these piecemeal products and integrating them and building out a whole chain. So they're just going to wait and see a platform which incorporates many of it. All of them need not be at 100% level. They will look for the things which are extremely important for them and they'll rank them. Okay, I, I need a nine in here. I need a nine in here kind of a thing. But then for certain elements, they'll say, you know what? That's not too important for us. If it becomes too important, we'll buy something else kind of a thing. They'll start from there. So, you know, I came from Indec a long time ago and we were building a platform and then looking at use cases where you could potentially think. So how do you look at the world when, you know, 
as startups, you do not have the budget to build out the whole stack. So you had to think about partnerships, horizontal integration across multiple products. But you also have to think about, well, what differentiates you? Because you're so um, you know, competing in, you know, from an algorithmic perspective, from an integration perspective, from a use case perspective. How do you look at the world when, as a startup, you're trying to build out things? And maybe you can, you know, there's probably a question more for Anthony Slater and Kareem on, you know, from an entrepreneurship perspective, how do you kind of look at the world when you're either being contended with like, well, do you integrate with all these platforms versus what's so unique and differentiating about you and why should they come to your particular product? So, I mean, there, there's a lot in there. I think that there are, so let me maybe say two things, because I think there's the one just generic question of like, how do you build a startup, right? So let's maybe put that to the side uh, <laughs> compared to the first question I asked, you think, which is, you know, the question of sort of a single product for, you know, the full stack of explainability versus multiple products. And, you know, you're fundamentally correct that when you look at any space, no company is going to become sort of smart enough in the space to really intelligently put these pieces together to build a full solution, right? It functionally doesn't happen. But, you know, this is how kind of most other technical industries go as well. If you look at cloud adoption or mobile adoption or testing, right, it's exactly the same in every single case, right, which is the SIs come in, right, and where someone really wants to adopt, they figure out how they're going to stitch together the particular solutions to get them something in a, in a full way, right. Uh, as a startup, really what you have to focus on is making sure that you've got one thing that is going to deliver enough value to make them say they have to be a part of that bundle for us. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Any, I, thought, I, any finishing thoughts for from Anthony and Kareem? Yeah. You know, Sri, I would take that question. So Slater is building a direct product with some explainability in in it. Uh, in the context of this meeting, I would take your question in terms of this O'Reilly thing I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, the there are like three companies. Actually, there's more. There's probably four or five. Like you have, you, you have Microsoft, you have Amazon, you have IBM, you have potentially SAS is something that nobody ever talks about, but is absolutely applicable in this conversation, right? Um, uh, there's some companies who like would like to say, I can be the monolithic solution that can give you everything you need, right? And Amazon, you know, to the whole, like if you want to do everything they do, all the pieces of this decently, right? Like you can, you can, you can use SageMaker, you can use their cloud services. They provide some bit monitoring around the application and around the models and some tooling around visibility, right? Like, but for those folks building the models, you talk to any data scientist, generalizability and the agility to pick the right model for the problem is going to continue to be the need of this entire space. And so like, if you are building a product like Slater, you're going to build the right technical methods to solve that problem the best way possible. Um, and you are not going to sacrifice solving that problem with the best accuracy for having some of these other things. You will figure out how to stitch in those pieces yourself. And so the prevalence of open source and the ability, frankly, Python being 95% of how a lot of these things are being done, that creates a certain connectivity in this larger space. Mm -hmm. um, it is a bet we are at least making as a company is as long as we play with the disparate elements in a clean way, we want the data scientists to have the agility to build a model that achieves the best confidence and outcome and accuracy for the problem they're trying to solve and then give them tooling that gives those other users back to the point around context and objectivity that gives these other people the visibility they need. Um, 
as an investor, I would say I can, I, it's, it's hard to think of any sector where um, the winner was a platform to begin with. Typically what you see is someone owning really, really well, a really, really hard part of the problem to solve that's the highest value for a particular vertical, a particular type of customer, a particular problem, and then winning there, expanding as fast as they can across that domain, and then expanding where the next need is for that part, that sector. And from there, they grow into a platform. And I think I, that's one of the reasons that I kind of use that cybersecurity analogy, because you can look back and say, okay, we all remember when we had a watch guard and then watch guard. Well, maybe we don't because I'm pretty old. <laughs> watch guard didn't, you know, wasn't enough anymore because the first DNS attacks were attacking. And then it wasn't DNS anymore. It was malware. And then it was DNS again. And then it was endpoint attacks. And at each point along that path, they were point tools until they began to be aggregated into platforms that became SecOps. DevOps looks really similar. And I think we see something similar here in terms of an AI application layer, an AI tools layer, and then a set of tools and techniques to support trust and transparency, and eventually security. Kareem, you have one uh, minute before we can close the session. I think Anthony Slater and Jennifer have covered it uh, very, very well. Uh, the only uh, point I'll make is on the earlier question about kind of investments in startups. And, and I, I sort of agree with Jennifer that at least in the enterprise space, it's not at all clear to me that the economics of a kind of B2B enterprise AI explainability companies is going to be anything like that of traditional software companies. There's a great piece out of Andreessen written by Martin Casado and I think Matt Bornstein talking about unit economics. Yeah. Yeah. About basically like once you contend with the data complexity and the model complexity and the edge cases that you're probably looking at businesses that are much more in the like, you know, if you're good, 50 to 60% margin range rather than, you know, the 70 to 85% margin range that traditional, I think, venture backed software companies, um, especially in the consumer. Now, space. I, and do you think that's because of the data burden as a differentiation? I think that I think it's it's, a, it's data complexity, but I think it also has a lot. You just like need humans in the loop. Yes. Especially yeah. a lot I, of I, I think people also really underestimate the compute cost, right? Yes. And that was one of the big points in that article. Is that uh, an example I'll give? Is that a lot of people like to take one document, feed it through multiple different OCR solutions, and then re-aggregate it. They don't realize that. Once you've got three or four OCR solutions there, your unit economics are already inverted. I think one of the things that'll be interesting is to see how stuff translates across verticals. So people who are building for the edge, truly edge and edge learning applications are developing techniques that um, let you do some physics and best vector analysis on your data so you can reduce the data to small data sets. This is certainly an area where we're fintech. This is a whole Our other conversation. Right now is really working hard, right? Yeah. That yeah, that stuff a... has the capability in the future to really reduce some of those costs, and hopefully also will make this systems greener, which is a whole other topic stream, maybe for another day. Absolutely. And when we when we kind of you know kick off the call the fall series of uh, workshops, we'll definitely factor that in. You know, green investing. Uh, rather green AI and how do we, I think there are already 
some talk about like responsible AI, not only from the perspective of uh, the AI itself, but also like, you know, how do you make sure that it's efficient enough? So um, uh, just to kind of close today's session, thank you so much for this engaging discussion. This was, this was fantastic. In fact, uh, I think I learned a lot more, you know, in today's session, you know, and I should have uh, and I had the session early on so that we could have kind of taken various themes and kind of you know, discussed throughout the summer school. Uh, so for people who are, uh, you know, looking for, uh, you know, some of the recordings and the prior uh, sessions, which we have, we had a couple of demos, some slides and video. So it's all available on Q.Academy. I'll be sharing these slides. Uh, you just used to, you need to use the code Q Summer School so that you get access to all the demos and the slides and the videos on the platform. And uh, next week, we are gonna have a discussion on validation, primarily for neural network models. And we have two fascinating speakers, Yar Kainitz, who I've known for a really long time. So he used to be a big MATLAB fan. He has written a lot of books uh, on primarily the Q side of uh, for, for quants for uh, knowing the difference between the P and the Q quants. He's primarily looking at the Q side of the story and integrating model risk and machine learning models. And he's gonna share his perspectives on um, you know, how do you validate neural network models. And Ben Steiner, who is at BNP, a good friend. And he and I, we have shared uh, multiple um, audiences and also you know, uh, we have spoken at multiple events wherein uh, we have discussed this whole notion of model risk management for machine learning models. And he comes from a perspective of a practitioner and what does it mean to validate these kinds of neural network models. And uh, we're gonna have a fascinating discussion next week. And uh, that's gonna be a one and a half hour session because they're both gonna be talking about their specific research, one from an academic slash you know, perspective of different kinds of models, but uh, Ben is gonna primarily talk about adoption and then we're gonna have a fireside chat. Uh, so that's uh, in store next week. And I've also shared uh, what I call as the new Decalogue, which is a paper I'm writing. It's called the 10 things you need to know about model governance for AI and machine learning models. And that's been like framework we have been discussing in the course. Uh, it's about 10 different things, not just explainability, as you can see, is just one piece of all the 10 pieces. Uh, so when you think about responsible AI in an industry setting, you have to think about roles, responsibilities, verification, metrics, inventory, tracking, defining what a model actually means, various choices, and uh, how do you think about development versus production, data governance and integration of data governance with model governance. So a lot of different components need to be factored in. So I've shared that in case anybody is interested in the longer paper, please do send me an email. So thanks so much for sticking around for a little more than what we had originally promised. I hope you got a lot of the session and uh, thank you again, speakers. This was a pleasure knowing you all and knowing about your work and what tried. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about your companies and how you're gonna be you know, changing the world with uh, the solutions you're bringing to the table. And uh, good luck, Jennifer, with uh, the raise of the funds. And once you get enough money, please uh, send some of it our way too. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so looking forward to engaging uh, offline and uh, we'll stay in touch. Goodbye, okay. everyone. Thank okay. you, guys. Great conversation. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for today's session of the Q Podcast Show. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit us at quantuniversity.com for upcoming events, courses, and to continue the discussion.